Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from John chapter 17, verse 13 through 19. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So over the last several weeks, if you have been with us, uh, we have been re-engaging with some of our founding vision and mission uh, as a church. Uh, something that we've said over the last several weeks is the world is very different uh, than it was back in 2019 when we first launched. Uh, but though the world is very different, we very much are of the conviction uh, that our mission and our values uh, have not changed at all since then. And so each week, uh, we have been looking at our vision, our mission, uh, very carefully and slowly, uh, particularly for those that maybe this is the first time that you're getting an opportunity to hear about what we are as a church, what we believe that God has uh, uniquely called us to be and to do uh, in this community. Uh, and so what we've been doing over the last uh, couple of weeks is now looking at our core values. Uh, last week, we took a look at a core value of spiritual formation, uh, the idea that we very much believe that we are a people constantly growing, constantly having our minds renewed by the work of the Spirit. Uh, and so we want to be a church that's constantly thinking about what it means for us to grow uh, more and more into a knowledge uh, of Jesus and the things that he desires for our lives. Um, and this week, we're going to be taking a look at our third core value, which we call community involvement. Let me just read for you uh, the brief statement that we, uh, that we have on community involvement. Uh, if you want more about uh, all these, uh, our, our mission, mission vision, values, and also these core values, you can go to our website. Uh, we have all of it there. But our core value, community involvement, is simply this, that we are a church that seeks to empower people to show the love of God by uh, being faithfully present in East Harlem and engaged with the specific needs and concerns of the neighborhood. That's our core value. That's what we mean by community involvement, to be faithfully present here in East Harlem. Uh, I want to more fully uh, consider this core value today by actually honing in on that very statement of what does it mean to be faithfully present? As a church, we desire to be faithfully present in the neighborhood where we gather, but I also want to take a look at what it just means for the Christian, wherever one might find themselves, to be faithfully present where God places us. What does it mean to be faithfully present in the workplace, in our family, in our building where we live, all the places God's placed us? How do we find faithful presence? And so to consider, let's take a look at faithful presence through the lens of what we see Jesus saying here in John 17 uh, by looking at the prayer of Jesus, the call from Jesus, and then finally the work of Jesus, all of which shapes why we as a church care so much about being a church sent into a community. 
So first, let's look at the prayer of Jesus. Uh, this prayer uh, that we just heard Allison read uh, is a prayer that's uh, part of what's known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, John 17 might more aptly be called uh, the Lord's Prayer. We, we call the prayer that we just prayed together the Lord's Prayer. Uh, this is actually probably more the Lord's Prayer because this is the actual prayer that Jesus prays for his disciples, for his followers. Uh, if you're a Christian, read these chapters and hear these words of Jesus as words that he's literally praying for you. These were not just, uh, this was not just a prayer for his disciples at the time. This is a prayer for you. And while there's so much that could be said about the various things that Jesus prays, the mission of Jesus and how it relates to the mission of his followers is actually one of the central aspects, central themes of the prayer itself. This prayer is a robust understanding of the salvation that Jesus accomplishes, but also the nature of the Christian's role in what God is doing in the world. But there are aspects of the prayer, though this is all true, there are aspects of this prayer that have created various interpretations about how Christians should relate to the world in which we live. What does it mean in particular for Christians, as Jesus puts it, to not be of this world and yet be in the world? What does that exactly mean? In context, it's important to note that this prayer is right before Judas betrays Jesus uh, when Jesus would be arrested, all of which, of course, leads to Jesus' eventual death. And this is why he prays with this kind of juxtaposition um, reality of not being of the world while also very much being in the world. Uh, Christians, since we are not of the world in the same way that Jesus is not of the world, we need to understand what Jesus is doing here. When Jesus talks about how he is not of the world and yet he is in the world and how that now relates to the Christian also not being of this world but yet being in the world. How was Jesus not of this world? Well, let's think about it in terms of what Jesus says uh, later on in John 18. In John 18, Jesus says there that his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is fundamentally different than the world. Uh, from a biblical perspective, the world is marked by all the effects of sin. The world, Jesus says in, in John 14, is, is ruled by the evil one. The world is this place of brokenness and sickness and suffering and fear and injustice and death. And whether one is a Christian or not, the brokenness of this world is pretty universally understood. We, we all might not agree about what's created the the brokenness of the world in which we live, and yet we would all still agree that one, at some level, as we look out into the world, as we look at the, the violence and the injustice and the anxiety and the depression and fear and the hatred and greed and deceptions and sickness and even death, all of these things exist out there, and we, we all feel like it's just not supposed to be that way. We long for something more than what this world has to offer us. We intuitively know this is not how it should be. And from a biblical perspective, we're meant to experience more than the brokenness of this world, which is why we long for something beyond what the world gives us, what the world provides for us, which is only suffering, mourning, and eventual death, something none of us can escape. And the point just being this, that the patterns of the world, right, the expectations of the world, 
are in direct contradiction to the kingdom of God. The kingdom is fundamentally a kingdom that's not ruled by the evil one, but rather is ruled by Jesus. It's a kingdom marked by hope and joy and compassion and mercy and justice and the glory and the majesty of God. The world and the kingdom of God could not be more opposed. And in particular, uh, one biblical commentator, when considering how John, uh, the Apostle John, uses the word world here, puts it this way. He says, what makes the world worldly? Well, it's the persistent rejection of the claims of God in favor of its own values and desires. In other words, worldliness, an experience of the world, is a rejection of the kingdom of God and instead an acceptance of the brokenness that's here. Right, when we talk about how one might be worldly, it's ultimately just that, a rejection of the kingdom of God and an acceptance of the way things are, the brokenness that exists. And consider the differences, the different assumptions of the world and Jesus' kingdom. For example, the world values power and strength and success to achieve its goals. But Jesus, when reflecting on his kingdom, says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The world says that wealth and financial security are signs of prosperity and favor, but wealth of individuals or wealth of nations is more often a curse than it is a blessing because Jesus tells us that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The world says that we are to live our truth, that we are to find our truth, that we are to align our values with what we think is best for ourselves. But Jesus says, whoever finds their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. It's Jesus who says, pick up your cross daily. Jesus that calls us to die to self. And that that's what it means to follow him. The world says that the poor should work harder, the sick should find their own health care, the stranger and the immigrant should go back to where they came from, that the prisoner should get gets what they deserve, and they should just rot in jail. But Jesus says that those who do not care for the poor, those who don't look after the sick, those who don't welcome the stranger or visit the prisoner will be cast away, for they have proved themselves to have never been part of his kingdom. The world says in the, in the words of Galatians 5 that we should value sexual immorality and idolatry and hatred and discord and jealousy and fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. The kingdom of God, though, according to Galatians 5, is not those things, but rather is marked by the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. My friends, I know for a fact that many of us are often more discipled by the influences of the world, the sexual immoralities of the world, the hatred and the discord, the rage and selfish ambition, the factiousness described in Galatians 5, more influenced by those things than we are the fruit of the Spirit. And this is what it means, ultimately, to be Christian, to no longer identify with the patterns of this world, the assumptions, the values of this world, and instead now shift loyalty away from those patterns and toward the kingdom of God and the values and purposes 
the kingdom. To be a Christian is to no longer identify with what, was, what is seen here, but to ultimately recognize that though we still live in this world, we are no longer, in the words of Philippians 3, citizens of this world, but now our citizenship has changed. To be a Christian is to understand that our citizenship is now the kingdom of God, not the world. That we now become aliens in a foreign land. As Christians, we see the ways that this is not our home, which is why we now can have language to understand that the things we experience in this world, they are not the way things should be. The ways that things should be will come one day in the experience of the kingdom of God. We will never find fulfillment, satisfaction in the things of this world because they were never designed or built to give it to us. But we have a particular challenge today that Jesus' disciples did not have. Everything that I just said applied to the disciples as well. But we have a particular challenge that, that was unique to us that was not to them. As Christians... Jesus' disciples at the time, they lived as a marginalized group under oppression. They did not possess cultural power or even freedom of religion as we know it. They had no cultural sway at the time. We, however, live in a time as a culture where Christianity has been the assumed default belief system and where Christianity is itself still remains this default belief system. And as a result, ironically, it creates a scenario where some can claim to be a Christian, but not actually be loyal to the values of the kingdom of God, but rather continue to be loyal to the values of the world. In other words, one might take the title Christian and yet never fundamentally realize or acknowledge the new citizenship that they have in the kingdom of God. Uh, you know, over the years, let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about here. Over the years, uh, many have debated whether or not the conversion of the emperor, Roman Emperor Constantine, was a good thing. Uh, if you don't know, in the fourth century, the Roman Emperor Constantine uh, converted to Christianity um, and as a result, ended up making Christianity the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. And as a result of that, it was at that moment where the church now acquired power. And many have debated whether or not that was a good thing. Uh, some have actually debated whether or not Constantine had a genuine conversion or he simply just saw how influential Christianity had become. And so as a result, it was advantageous for him as a political move to convert to Christianity. But here's really where the tension lies. Here's where the debate sits. Uh, on the one hand, when Christianity became the dominant religion of the Roman Empire, as a result, Christians were no longer persecuted. And they could now worship freely and even call others to worship uh, Jesus, which was wonderful. That's a good thing. But on the other hand, from that point on, Christians have struggled to distinguish the difference between being part of the world and the kingdom of God. The church has struggled since that time to make a distinction between loyalties to their perceived Christian nations and the kingdom of God. Since that time, we have seen that power and faith are dangerous bedfellows. Give you some examples over the course of history. When the church uh, spiritualized the Crusades as an act of protecting the faith, they confused worldliness 
with the kingdom of God. When the church decreed that all lands that were deemed not Christian could be colonized and that those who did not convert to Christianity could be enslaved, they confused worldliness with the kingdom of God. When nations established state religions based on dominant streams of Christianity and then persecuted those who did not submit, they confused worldliness with the kingdom of God. When John Winthrop and many other American colonial political leaders said things like this new nation was to be a city on a hill, a title that is reserved for the people of God, they confused worldliness with the kingdom of God. Even today, when we debate about things like Christian nationalism, which, by the way, for a while, many claimed was not actually a thing, but now more and more, it's being explicitly used by politicians and church leaders, the whole notion of Christian nationalism. It's confusing worldliness with the kingdom of God. It's an attempt to conflate faith and trust in the work of Jesus, being the people of God, with what it means to live in this world. Those, of course, are you know, examples related to Christians in power, but there are many other examples of how, even within broader cultural trends, we see this as well. You know, when, when people take, just as an example, when people take the good and true doctrine of the image of God in others, believing that people must be treated with dignity and respect, this is, of course, very true. But I have seen, over and over again, this desire to honor the dignity of people devolve into a belief that we should, as a result, never challenge someone's conduct, decisions, or beliefs. It's devolved into believing that though they are valuable, or because they are valuable, I can't actually ever challenge them when they're out of alignment with what God would desire from them. Honoring the dignity of people does not mean that they get to determine what is good, right, true, holy, and pure. A desire to honor the dignity of people has led some to redefine what righteousness is, redefine what sin is, and when we are swayed to reject God's righteousness and instead take on new cultural definitions about a whole uh, bunch of things, we've confused worldliness with the kingdom of God. How then do we respond to this obvious tension that we can so easily fall back into the patterns of this world and maybe even at times spiritualize our de-evolution into those patterns. I mean, what do we do with this? Should Christians run away from the world and isolate? Well, here's the tension. Jesus does not ask that God would take his followers out of the world. He's pretty explicit about this, but rather, he says, that as citizens now of another kingdom, that they should, be, they should remain and be sent into the world. So how then are we to reflect his kingdom and still remain faithful in a world that is so antithetical to the kingdom? Well, that brings us to point number two, which is the call from Jesus. Uh, historically, the church has erred in one of two ways when determining its relationship to the world. And we've already touched on this a little bit. But this tends to be what happens. Christians over the course of time have either isolated themselves from the world or they have embraced the world. And I want to expound on those two things a bit more. For those who isolate, they take the idea, if maybe you've heard this before, that we are called to be in the world but not of the world, to mean 
that Christians are to hunker down and just isolate themselves. They are to be in the world and just avoid being corrupted uh, by the world. So they create uh, their own safe place. But to our opening thoughts about this faithful presence, what they're trying to do when they isolate is they're trying to be faithful, but they stop being present. There is, however, of course, the other way, where others embrace the world, believe their calling is to be sent into the world, but then they lose sense of what it means to reflect God's kingdom in the world. And as we said, they want to show maybe the love and compassion of God, God, but in doing so, they veer from what is good, right, and true. And again, into our faithful presence language, this is them being present, but not faithful. But when we look at Jesus' prayer here, we see just how important a faithful presence is. What does Jesus actually pray? He says that, they are, that we are not of the world, again, meaning that our, our loyalties have shifted and that they are to not be taken out of the world. But look at verse 18. Again, just to make this explicit, he calls us and prays that we would be sent into the world. In other words, Jesus des desires not for his followers to hunker down and isolate and await his return by shifting their eyes off the world. Rather, he desires for his followers who are already of another kingdom to keep their eyes on this world while they are being sent into it. And that is a difficult tension. And again, let me show us a little bit of how we tend to err. And let me, allow me to push some extremes for a moment just to prove the point. But consider the, the practical realities of what it means to be faithful, to isolate, to be faithful but not present. What that usually ends up meaning is that Christians create a bit of a subculture. And in the uh, West, and in particular evangelicalism, has been very good at creating Christian subcultures. I'll explain to you what I mean. Some believe that uh, to be a, a Christian, again, to be in the world but not of the world, uh, is to create a robust Christian subculture that's detached from everything happening out in the world. It creates an environment where Christians want to keep the world out as much as possible. And this is how Christian started being used as an adjective instead of remaining a noun. This is how entire industries like Christian music and Christian colleges and Christian movies and Christian books and Christian clothing companies uh, have sprung up. Don't get me wrong. I actually appreciate a lot of those things. Uh, I have benefited from Christian schools. Uh, I certainly enjoy music that's classified as Christian music. Uh, I've certainly owned a Jesus fish and a what would Jesus do bracelet uh, back in the 90s that I definitely bought from a Christian bookstore. <laughs> but what I'm addressing is that Within our culture, one where Christians have held a privileged position for a long time, creating a subculture became the goal of being in but not of. For some, remaining in that subculture and avoiding anything that was labeled not Christian or secular, if you've been around the church for a little while, this was the epitome of faithfulness. This, however, is not what Jesus calls Christians to do. Back to the idea of faithful presence. This ideology is an attempt at faithfulness, but it results in a complete lack of presence. And the net result is Christians who end up being disconnected from the tangible concerns and realities of what's happening broadly in the places in which they live. And anything 
that seems to uh, undermine the cultural bubble of that subculture ends up being warred against vehemently, which is part of the reason why Christians have gotten really good at culture wars. Anything that's deemed outside of that bubble is to be fought and fought vehemently. So that's one error because it disconnects us from the things happening. But of course, the other extreme, what it looks like to not be faithful and yet be very present in this world. And this happens a lot as well. It's a church that's hyper aware of the concerns and the realities of the world. One that sees the injustices and and the cultural trajectories within their community and desires to engage with what's happening. However, it can lack a conviction as they go out into the world to also be a distinct community different from the priorities and the assumptions of the world. This is a church that is more influenced by the opinions of a cultural moment and less influenced by fidelity to God's word and his commands about what is good, right, true, holy, and righteous. And in this way, we then have a church, again, that is present, very engaged with what's happening around them, and yet is not faithful. But again, Jesus wants his disciples to know that neither of these approaches is going to be sufficient. Because the alternative that Jesus proposes is for his church to be loyal and faithful to one king, a king whose kingdom will never end. And as they are faithful to that king, they go into the world, not in some isolated, walled-off way, but immersed fully in what's happening in the world in order that they can make known his kingdom in both their words and their deeds. As I've said, we've said this over and over again over the last couple of months in the words of J.I. Packer, that the role of the church is to make the invisible kingdom of God visible now. And that doesn't mean that we set up a subculture that becomes its own little kingdom. No, it means we go out into the world. We are sent out into the world to make visible the invisible kingdom. Uh, Orlando Costas, who's a, a theologian, he put it this way that the church, which is not the kingdom, is nevertheless its most valuable expression of its most faithful interpreter and its most faithful interpreter of our age. The church both embodies the kingdom in its life and witness to its presence and its mission. In other words, the church, those whom Jesus sends out are to embody his kingdom in the world and to be faithful interpreters of our age. This is what it means to be faithfully present. And thus, all of this is in the context, remember, of core value number three. This is what it means to be involved in our community, to recognize that we are sent out into the world, into the concerns and the injustices and the brokenness of this world, to engage it fully with faithfulness, to reflect the invisible kingdom, making it visible now. All that said, let me just pause there and ask you to consider what this means for us individually, personally, and also what that means for us as a church. Let me first ask the question, where do our loyalties lie? And to what kingdom are we loyal? Don't brush by that question. That is a big one. Where do our loyalties lie? If our answer is, my loyalties are to the kingdom of God, that has a lot of implications. 
in how we live, the decisions we make, the things that we believe to be good, right, and true. And second question is if we are loyal to the kingdom of God, we have to then ask ourselves, are we reflecting his kingdom in this world? Do we see ourselves as people being sent into the world to be faithfully present? Or as Costas says, to be a visible expression, the most faithful interpreter of that kingdom. Do we see our lives in that kind of way? Because here's the bottom line. Jesus is sending his followers. If you are a Christian here, I'm talking to you. Jesus is sending his followers into a world that he loves. All right, we all know the famous verse of John 3:16 that God so loves the world. And it's a world that so often, so often persistently rejects him in favor of its own values, its own desires, sending us out into a world full of people who have resigned themselves to the brokenness of this world, never having hope beyond death, the death that sits before all of us. Jesus calls us to follow him out into that world. And the rest of the verse tells us the extent to which God in Christ loves the world. You know, if you know John 3, 16, for God so, loves the, so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. I mean, this shows the extent to which God is committed to restoring the brokenness of this world, to see the fullness of his kingdom come and restore the cosmos. And he does so in order that the world might see and experience a kingdom that will never end, a kingdom that is ruled by a king who is always good. And this, finally, is where we get to the work of Jesus. Jesus sends his people out in order to reflect his kingdom and to make known what he has accomplished. Look at verse 19. This is what Jesus has accomplished. He says, for them, right? So his disciples, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you as well. For them, Jesus says, I sanctify myself that they too may be sanctified. Other translations say that Jesus consecrates himself. In other words, Jesus recognizes what he's asking of his people. And he knows that it will require everything from his followers. You cannot be loyal to the kingdom of God without giving your full life to it. To give oneself to another kingdom will sometimes mean being in conflict with the world in which he sends us out. He's not asking a small thing as he sends his followers out. He says in, in verse 14 that as a result of his word, the world hated him and the world will also hate his followers too. He knows that he calls his followers to a complete reorientation of his life. But remember the context of Jesus's prayer. This is right before he would eventually go to the cross. When Jesus says that he sanctifies himself, that his disciples might be sanctified, he's referring to the lengths to which he's willing to go to ensure that we become citizens of this new kingdom. Jesus was sent into the world, not of this world, but sent into the world for he was not of the world because he was completely aligned with and loyal to another kingdom. Yet because he was sent into the world, he was willing to do what was necessary in order to bring others to his kingdom, which was to lay down his life. He was sent into the world for you and me. I mean, think about uh, the opening chapter 
of John, the Apostle John, where he talks about how the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that as a result, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, out of love for us. The Son of God got involved in our community, so to speak. This is what it means for Jesus to have come. The incarnation was Jesus being faithfully present. Faithful in the sense that his full loyalty was the kingdom of God, but present in the sense that he was willing to step into the brokenness and the messiness of this world. He dwelt among us, experienced the suffering and the pains of this world. He was hated by those who uh, opposed him, opposed the work of the Father. And yet, even though there was resistance, even though there was even hatred, Romans 5 tells us, that while we were yet sinners, while we were still loyal to another kingdom, while we still hated God, he died for us. And because he was sent into this world to be faithfully present, we are now able to be a people that are faithfully present and sent out into the world to experience the sufferings and the pains of this world. And though we might be hated, Christian, though you will be hated at times, he calls us to make his kingdom known and seen, to be that visible expression, to make visible the invisible kingdom. And here's the, the beauty of what it means for us to be sent. When we think about the work of Jesus, Jesus does not ask us to do something that he has not already done himself and that he will not ultimately accomplish himself. We don't need to go out into the world, reflect the kingdom of God by attempting to create a world in which we have established the kingdom of God. You cannot establish the kingdom of God, which is why the subculture is not going to work, which is why religious colonialism isn't going to work, which is why Christian nationalism is never going to work. You will not establish the kingdom of God. Jesus is the one who will allow us to experience the fullness of his kingdom one day when he returns. But we, as his people, those whom he has died for, also sends his spirit to us to empower us to be faithfully present in this world. We do not go on our own into this world because as a result of his spirit with us, Jesus himself is with us as we're sent. And so if you are a Christian, if you are part of the people of God, the, one, the ones whom Jesus has laid down his life for, know that as he sends us out into the world to be faithfully present, we don't go alone. We go with the power of his spirit. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is with you when you walk out of this building. And so be encouraged that he will, as we desire to be loyal and faithful to his kingdom, give us what we need to be that visible expression of the kingdom in the world. And may that cause us to go with hope and joy for the work that's before us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that uh, out of your love for us, you were faithfully present with us in Jesus. We thank you for the work of our Savior, a work that uh, was faithful, a work that showed and proved what it really means to be fully and completely loyal to another kingdom while also being very present in this world of brokenness. 
God, forgive us for the ways that we do not reflect rightly what it means for us to be in this world but not of it. Would you forgive us when we retreat from the world, leaving the world to its own devices, never giving opportunity for people to experience even just a glimmer of the kingdom of God? Would you also forgive us for the ways that maybe we are willing to go out into the world but we lose sight of what it means to be faithful? Instead, taking on our own perspectives of what is good, right, and true instead of honoring you as the one who determines what is good, right, and true. Forgive us. And Lord, would you encourage us as we seek to be faithfully present to remember that as a result of what Jesus has done, he has died for our sins, he has resurrected and given us hope that one day we will resurrect again, but he's also given us a spirit who is with us and as a result, Christ himself is with us. Would that be an encouragement to us? Would that give us boldness, but also hope and joy for the task that you've laid before us? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.